Good morning. It's great to be worshiping with you guys. Uh, if I haven't met you uh, so far, my name is John Neville. I'm out here this summer doing a church planning internship with Nate Walker in Christ Church here. And I'm a seminary student out in St. Louis, Missouri. And this is my summer, second summer with you guys, and I've loved it out here. And I just want to say thank you guys for having me. I, I appreciate it a lot. These summers have been very helpful and formative for me as I prepare to go into ministry. So thank you guys for having me. Uh, I'm excited about our topic we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, something that's very important. And we're going to be talking about it from a part of Scripture, which might seem a little bit strange or odd to you. It's the story of Jonah and the whale, being swallowed by the whale. Uh, and you might be wondering to yourself, what in the world does this fairly fantastic Old Testament story have to do with this New Testament worship? And there's actually there's a lot of connections here. Uh, but let me say this by way of background, and we're going to be operating here a lot, that Scripture is one large unified story, and that God establishes different ways, different patterns of relating to his people in the story. And as the story moves on, uh, those patterns find deeper and richer and fuller expressions to the story. And so what was once rumors and shadows in the Old Testament becomes reality in the New Testament. And one of the examples of this is actually right here in our passage, that we have a rumor or shadow of something, which later in the New Testament becomes the Lord's Supper. And like I said, there's a lot of connections here. Uh, some are complex, some are a little more straightforward, but let me kind of give you a little more of a straightforward example of this. Uh, our passage starts off with Jonah being thrown overboard, and uh, it ends in, and in the chapter 1. He's thrown overboard into the storm. He's drowning. The Lord actually sends a fish to save him. And inside the belly of the fish, he prays this prayer. And this prayer culminates all the way in verse 9. And in verse 9, uh, it's talking about this special ritual that he longs to do in the temple. And this ritual is called the peace offering. And uh, the peace offering is a, a very important offering in the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's something that Moses uh, does when he's on Mount Sinai. Uh, you know the story, maybe. Uh, Moses is getting the Ten Commandments uh, in, in the Mount Sinai. And then in verse, or chapter 24, it says he's actually on top of the mountain eating a meal with the Lord, with the elders and with Aaron. And this, uh, this uh, special meal he's eating is a peace offering. And in fact, Jesus himself, later in the New Testament, talks about the peace offering, and he connects it directly to the Lord's Supper. If you look in a place like Luke 22, where Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, uh, he's actually... Uh, connecting it directly to uh, what was happening in Exodus 24. He's quoting Moses in Exodus 24, where he was performing a peace offering. And so what, what Jesus is saying is that the peace offering, which was performed by Moses on top of Mount Sinai, which Jonah was longing to participate in uh, when he's in the belly of the whale, is actually the same kind of offering we have here before us at the Lord's table. Uh, and so this is, this is something very important, and we're going to focus, we're going to zero down, uh, zero, in on verse 9, which is where we learn a lot about this offering. And I thought it might be helpful. Some of you might be wondering, I don't quite see it. I don't see it. So let me, let me paraphrase this prayer and uh, translate this prayer as if it was said by a modern Christian. Here's, my, here's how it might sound if it was said by a modern Christian. Lord, I was in trouble and under your judgment, but I cried out to you in my need, and you saved me. And oh, how I long to worship with you in church to be with your people, to sit at your table, and be fed by you. The culmination of this prayer is this Lord's Supper. It's, it's him desiring to be with the Lord, eating with the Lord in his presence. Uh, and so this is how it would sound if it was written, perhaps, by a modern person. 
And I'm going to be honest with you about my own experience. I grew up going to church, and I thought church was a bit boring. And I'm sure nobody else here has thought that. I'm probably the only one. But it was, I thought church was a little bit boring. And, and uh, one of the things that made church exciting for me was the fact, was the realization that when I come to church, I am actually meeting with the Lord. I am actually being present with the Lord. He's, he's actually inviting me uh, to, to uh, in fact, share a meal with them. The most acute expression of the presence of the Lord is actually right here in front of us, is where the Lord is inviting us to be a guest at his table. And that's, that's made church going from being a little bit boring to something that actually was thrilling. And it wasn't thrilling because of exciting teaching or talented music. It was exciting because God himself was actually meeting with me. And I'll say communion is, is something that's it's very important because the entire gospel is packed into this one event. So we're going to talk about something we do for 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. But on top of this, we're actually going to be talking about the whole gospel. And so hopefully you'll see those connections as we talk about the Lord's Supper, that the gospel is weaved in and out of this. Uh, and my prayer for us this morning has been that we would be like Jonah, who is longing to feast with the Lord in Jerusalem. So let me read our passage. If you have a bulletin, pull it out. It's printed on there. Uh, if you have a, There's Bibles under the pews if you want to take a look that way. Or you can uh, just listen to me, and I'm going to read it to you. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my prayer. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from the pit, brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into the holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And here's our important verse. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Let's pray. Father, we are eager right now to hear from you and to meet with you. And so we ask for your spirit that you be present, uh, teaching us and guiding us, in particular when we talk about worship, that he would be uh, teaching us about faithful worship and forming us into faithful worshipers, that Christ would be formed in us through these words. We pray this for your glory. Amen. So we're talking about the Lord's Supper, and there's three things I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. Say, say about the Lord's Supper. The first is this, the Lord's Supper is a meal we eat with the Lord himself. Second is this, the Lord's Supper identifies us with the redeemed. And the last is that the Lord's Supper unites us to each other. So let's start with the first thing. The Lord's Supper is a meal we eat with the Lord himself. Let me read verse 9 to you. But with the voice of thanksgiving will I sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And you notice there, there's this talk about sacrifice and vows. And in the Old Testament, and this is actually shorthand for that special offering I was talking about, the peace offering. And the peace offering uh, was connected by Jesus, like we were talking about, connected by Jesus to the Lord's Supper. So if we want to understand the Lord's Supper a little bit better, we're going to take a look at the peace offering and see what it's about. 
And one of the first things we see about the peace offering, it's really detailed in Leviticus 3, if you're interested. Uh, Leviticus 3 teaches us that the peace offering is an actual meal they would eat with the Lord himself. Uh, it was something where they, a meal they would actually come into the Lord's presence and share a meal with them. And the way this happened was through a sacrifice. And you have an ancient Israelite, they would bring an animal, maybe a bull or a goat or a sheep, and they would bring it to a priest, and the priest would kill it, and he would cut it up, and he would take out the fatty parts, and he would put the fatty parts on top of the altar, and he would burn them. And then something very unusual would happen, something that didn't happen in any of the other sacrifices. The Israelite would actually eat part of the sacrifice. And what was going on here, it was symbolizing, it was representing the fact that the worshiper was actually sharing a meal with the Lord. The, the fatty portion that got burned up on the altar was the Lord's portion, and what the Israelite ate, Israelite ate was actually their portion, their, their part, portion of the meal. And it's very important that this was a symbol. It was a representation of something deeper. It was something where they were actually coming to the Lord's presence, feeding with them, uh, feasting with them. Uh, but there was something also really important that happened, that this was not wishful thinking. They were not saying, wouldn't it be cool if this ritual we're doing right now actually was the real case? No, this ritual actually was an instrument or a means by which the Lord actually ate a real meal with them. It wasn't, it wasn't hopeful thinking. They actually shared a real meal with the Lord himself, which is pretty amazing. The Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, we also share a meal with the Lord. Uh, the Lord, this is not just a symbol. It's not wishful thinking, but it's actually an instrument or a means by which the Lord desires to commune with us and eat with us and feed with us. And we're actually coming into his presence when we do this, which is pretty exciting. I think that's part of what makes the Lord's Supper so, so exciting. But here's another thing that we learn about the peace offering. It is the way the Lord shows us his hospitality. Uh, meals in the Old Testament, there were ways that people would extend hospitality to somebody. Uh, hospitality was, was not just uh, you know, making good food and having a nice, nicely well-decorated home. Hospitality was bringing a stranger into your home. It was taking an outsider and making them part of your family. And, and it was expressed through this meal they would share together. And so one of the things, uh, when we have the Lord's Supper, it's an actual meal, and it's the Lord showing us his hospitality. He's saying that you are not strangers, you are not outsiders, but you actually belong to me. You are part of my family. He's, he's giving us an honored place at his table. He's eager to commune with us. And one of the things we might kind of wonder is, why in the world is Jonah so excited to go eat with the Lord? If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Jonah screwed a lot of things up. In fact, he was willfully disobedient to the Lord. Uh, and, and so usually when you screw something up, you offend somebody, you don't wanna, you're a little shamed, and you don't want to go spend time with them. And this illustrates a very important principle for the table. And it's this. The Lord's table is a table of grace. Grace is what rules this table. We don't come to the Lord thinking that we've somehow earned a place at his table. We don't come to the Lord saying we've done something that makes us worthy for, us, for you to accept us, to embrace us. We come with paupers, as paupers, with our hands open, and it's through Christ we find that God is the consummate host and we are his welcome guests. And in his generosity, he sought us and he found us and he washed us and he made us part of his family and he wants to eat with us and he wants to feed us. And this is exciting news and the gospel hospitality is expressed in the Lord's table. When we think about the hospitality of the gospel, something we talk a lot about here at CCB, something that is very uh, central to us, it's expressed in a very important way through the table right here. And so the Lord wants people like Jonah, people who screw it up huge, big time. He wants people like you, and he wants people like me at his table. Here's the last thing about the peace offering. It's a ceremony 
where God renews his vows with us. Uh, one of the ways, meals, they were not just ways of showing hospitality to people. There are ways that you actually uh, confirmed a covenant relationship. And uh, I, I go to a school called Covenant Seminary. Uh, this is a little embarrassing to admit, but it took me about two years to figure out what the heck the word covenant even meant. And so let me tell you what it is. It's covenant uh, means two parties coming together, binding themselves to each other, promising themselves to each other, and there's a whole bunch of different responsibilities involved with that. And that, that binding, that covenant relationship, was commemorated by a meal that they would share together. And probably the closest example we have to this in our culture is a wedding ceremony. In a wedding, you have two people. Uh, they're coming together, they're, they're apart, and then they're being bound together. And they're pledging themselves to each other and making promises. And then what do you do afterwards? You go have a party, and you, ha- you eat some good food and all this stuff. Uh, and so this is what's going on uh, with us here at the Lord's table, is that the Lord is actually pledging himself to us. Uh, and when we come to the table, the Lord is saying to us, I am yours, and you are mine. And one of the things this passage it does is it's contrasting. Uh, it's, it's actually a, it's a confrontation. Uh, it's confronting idolatry. Let me read verse 8 to you. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And this is our verse, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Jonah, in uh, verse 8, is talking about uh, idolatry. And he's saying that idols are these worthless, empty things that we actually worship. And he's saying part of what makes them so empty and worthless is they won't love you and serve you like the Lord actually does. And then in verse 9, he's He's contrasting idolatry and its disloyalty with the type of loyalty and promises that happen at the Lord's table. He's saying that the Lord is, is someone who's actually worthy of our worship. Uh, and the, his faithfulness is something we actually experience here in worship. And when we come to worship, he's talking all about gratitude. Well, let me tell you why he's talking about gratitude. At the time of Jonah, sacrifices were oftentimes the way that the gods were fed. That the gods would get hungry, they would get angry, and, they would, and then you would feed them to appease them and make them happy. And part of what, uh, what's going on here is saying that you don't actually have to feed the Lord. You don't have to, he's not upset with you, and you've got to kind of like get, get on a, a right equilibrium with him. Uh, he's actually already accepted you. He's approved of you. He wants you in. And so you come with nothing but your gratitude. And the same is happening here with us at the table. And so we come to the Lord, grateful that he's accepted us, uh, embraced us, made us his own, and that this is why he is worthy of our worship. And this whole bit about the worthlessness of idols uh, reminds me a lot about a story in the Old Testament, the golden calf. And uh, the story of the golden calf is Israel, they were in uh, Egypt, they were slaves. God rescues them, he brings them out of Egypt, he brings them to this mountain where he's going to covenant with them. And the, way, the scenario, the setup is Moses is on top of the mountain, he's meeting with the Lord, Israel's down below, and they're getting a little bored and fidgety. And they go to their number two, Aaron, and they say, Aaron, uh, why don't you build us a golden calf, and we'll worship it. And Aaron says, okay, I'll build you a golden calf. Just here's the deal. Give me those golden earrings in your ear. And they say, okay, we'll give you our golden earrings. So they give him the golden earrings, and out of these earrings, he fashions the golden calf. And here's the twisted irony of this whole situation. It's that those golden earrings were actually the symbols of their slavery in Egypt. It's what marked an Egyptian slave. And so by worshiping something that was made out of their slavery, they're actually worshiping something that is so obviously disgusting and worthless and something that's connected to some of the worst parts in their history. And the same, this illustrates for us today, uh, what Jonah is talking about, is that idol worship is something that's actually empty. It's something, in fact, that's connected to the very worst part of our lives, our slavery to sin. 
But when we pledge ourselves to the Lord, as we pledge ourselves especially at the table, uh, we are pledging ourselves to someone who is actually uh, worthy of our worship. He offers us freedom. So let me recap on this. There's kind of a lot, lot going on here. Uh, Jesus himself connects the Lord's Supper to the peace offering. And some of the things this means is that we're actually sharing a meal with the Lord himself. We're coming into his presence. And it means that the Lord is showing us hospitality and grace, and he says, come as you are. And that in the meal, the Lord is pledging himself to us, and we pledge ourselves to the Lord. Uh, let me move on to the next point. The Lord's Supper identifies us as redeemed. It identifies us as redeemed, and we need to zero in on what redemption means to kind of understand this a little bit better. And redemption is a, is a reference to the Exodus. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the Exodus, let me tell you a little bit about it. Israel was in slavery for over 400 years to Pharaoh. And in their distress, they cried out to the Lord, and he answered them. And he promised them that he would liberate them, and he would make them his own children. And so he led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And when they got to the Red Sea, the Lord parted the waters, and it says they walked on the very floor of the ocean. And they arrived safely on the other side in dry land. And then the Lord came to them, brought them to a mountain, and he said, build me a temple, and I will dwell with you, and I will be your people, and uh, you will worship me through sacrifices and vows. And the Lord says, I want you to commemorate everything I did with a special meal called the Passover. And the Passover will be practiced by every generation of Israelites for however many generations there are. And when they would practice the Passover, part of what was happening, they were bringing to mind all the great things the Lord had done from all of his mighty deeds they were thinking about and meditating on and chewing on them. But there was something also happening that was even more important, that they were identifying themselves as an exodus people. They were saying, we are not slaves, uh, we are not sojourners anymore, uh, but we are actually, uh, we have been liberated, emancipated by the Lord, and we belong to him as his children. <clears throat> if you read our passage, you see the same kind of liberation going on. Jonah was drowning in the water, and in his distress, he called out to the Lord, and the Lord hears him. And it says that he passed through the waters, even going to the very floor of the ocean, where he was delivered by the whale. The whale was his deliverance. It was actually not his punishment, even though it sounds miserable. Uh, and God was saving him through this. Uh, and it talks about Jonah's desire to be with the Lord, to be worshiping him through sacrifices and vows in the temple in Jerusalem. And so what Jonah is experiencing here is his own kind of exodus. God is sparing him from judgment, and he's being delivered from the waters. And Jesus himself picks up this idea of the Exodus in the Gospels. And in fact, in Luke 9.31, Jesus explicitly says he is going to Jerusalem to uh, accomplish a new Exodus. Jesus is saying that he wants to accomplish some kind of new Exodus, and he's going to do it through the cross, through his crucifixion. And it's going to be similar to the old uh, Exodus, in that Jesus is sparing us his judgment. Uh, he's going to be liberating us from the tyranny of sin. We're no longer uh, under the power and sway of sin. Uh, and he says that we are actually going to be uh, his children. And if you look at a place like uh, Matthew 26, Jesus is saying he wants to actually commemorate this new exodus that he's doing. And he's performing a Passover ritual in Matthew 26. And in fact, he's, and he's connecting it to his crucifixion. And so what he's saying, the Lord's Supper is actually the new Passover. So the cross is the new exodus, and the Lord's Supper is the new Passover. And so just as Israel remembered uh, what the Lord had done, we also, in the Lord's Supper, remember all the things that have done. But more importantly, when we come to the table, God is giving us a new identity. He's saying that this salvation event, this cross, marks you. It identifies you. Uh, he's saying that you belong to me. You're no longer slaves or aliens or sojourners, uh, but you've been pardoned and you're my children. 
And so the table identifies us as a people of the cross. And there's something really important going on here. Uh, one of the things I've struggled with in my own life, and I know that other people have sometimes struggled with, is how do we reconcile the structures of church with the importance of faith? So how do we, how do we reconcile, say, a ritual with faith? Or how do we reconcile something like the formalities and habits that we all do with this kind of authentic um, heart posture of joy and gratitude and trust and, and all these things like this? Uh, and, and so we, we sometimes see these things, uh, structures, as a threat to authentic worship. And people have a lot of, they'll talk about this a lot of different ways. Maybe it, it hampers the spontaneous work of the Spirit. Uh, maybe it hampers a sincere heart posture or something like this. But I have a question for you if, if, if you're like me and you've maybe struggled this at some point in your life. For those of you who, uh, say, have regular date night with a spouse, or who have nightly meals with your children, who have weekly coffee appointments with a friend, do you think that any of these habits, these structures, stifle relationship, or do they cultivate relationship? And what every single person here knows is that structure in relationship actually cultivates relationship. It brings you together, it binds you closer, it makes love for each other. And the same thing is going on with the table. This doesn't stifle faith. It's actually a means that the Lord has given to us to actually nourish and feed us. And the same is happening with all the structures of the church, that uh, these aren't things that are, um, are bad for us. They don't uh, hold back our worship. They're actually ways that the Lord plants the gospel in our hearts and grows it and cultivates it and matures it. And so we need these structures. They're wonderful things. They're not in contradiction to things like our, our joy or our gratitude or different things like that. They actually work in tandem together. So it's, very, it's a very wonderful thing. The fact that we do the same thing every single Sunday, more or less, is actually exactly the thing that we need. And so wonderful. And I will say to you that some of you uh, here might say that I, I really struggle with believing the gospel. You know, I really struggle. You know, there's a lot of sins I kind of hold over against me. There's a lot of... Um, uh, you know, I really have a hard time trusting God's promises, developing an affection for him. Uh, well, the Lord's table is for you then. If you struggle with this, I encourage you to be diligent in coming to church every Sunday and preparing your heart when you come to church and being ready to meet with the Lord because it's through these structures, particularly through the Lord's Supper, that God wants to actually meet you in your need. Remember one of the things I said earlier was that the table is where the hungry get fed. So we need the table and the structures of the church are actually good for us. Uh, let me recap on this. We've been talking about that Christ is uh, accomplishing a new exodus through the cross. And we commemorate this every single morning, uh, every single Sunday morning, through here, where we're identified as a people of the cross. He tells us, you are my children, uh, you belong to me. Here's the last point about uh, the Lord's Supper. And it's that it unites us to each other. It binds us to each other. It knits us together. Uh, this point will be a little quicker. Uh, Jonah, if you look at our passage, he is... Um, incredibly isolated when the passage starts out. He's thrown overboard. He's drowning. Like, this is probably the worst point in his life. Uh, you know, he's probably never been more alone. And yet, as, as the prayer uh, develops, and the flow of the thought here, is that God, he's actually moving towards community. He's moving towards actually worshiping with God's people in Jerusalem. Um, and so the flow of thought is from isolation to being with God's people in the temple. And all these Old Testament rituals we're talking about uh, they're all community events. They're not between an individual and the Lord. Uh, they're actually between families and the Lord. Or they're between whole assemblies and congregations and the Lord. And one of the beautiful things about the Passover is when you, when you read about it, it's always saying that, hey, if there's sojourners in your land, there's aliens here, uh, and they want to eat the meal with you, circumcise them, and actually let them eat the meal with you. And this, this Passover offering was a way that outsiders were brought in. 
It was a way that the people that were, who were outcasts were actually made part of your family, which is something that's incredibly beautiful. Uh, and this meal is very important for overcoming the divisions of the church. Uh, when you, if you look at the Lord's Supper, you do a topical study of it in the New Testament, you find that it's, it's always talking about divisions in the church and, uh, and how the meal actually overcomes them, or actually how the meal confronts them in some way. And uh, Jonah's, Jonah's big problem is that he was a nationalist. Jonah was a nationalist, and he thought uh, Israel was the greatest country in the world, they were superior to everybody else, and that he wanted them to hoard all of God's blessings. And I kind of made a picture to myself that there was a number of other chapters added to Jonah. If, say, there was a half dozen more chapters, uh, we might not say Jonah chapter 8 or something. There's only ch- four chapters, but Jonah, Jonah chapter 8, imagine with me. Uh, Jonah might be actually in the temple worshiping, and then there's these pagan sailors he met in chapter 1 who actually he runs into, bumps into, and he's actually worshiping with them. And wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be kind of like, you know, a beautiful answer to this prayer that he's right here? And that's because worship actually brings us together. And the same is true for us this morning, is that the Lord's Supper is a family meal we actually sit down and share with each other. And strangers and enemies share the same meal. And it's through this meal that we actually become family. And so remember what I said, it's not just a pretty picture, it's not just wishful thinking. It's that the Lord is actually, through this meal, knitting us together. By the work of the Spirit, in a mysterious but real way, He is actually knitting and binding us together. And so, if, this is kind of the medicine we need, honestly, because we go throughout the week and we, we have all these divisions and all these conflicts. And so when we come to the meal together, it's a great way of actually the, where the Lord can bind us together. And this idea of being knit together in worship is something that's been very important for my own story. Uh, I'm originally from Boulder, Colorado. And uh, one of the things I've, I've been told my whole life is that I've embraced every stereotype there is of a Boulderite. And I always feel like people are making fun of me whenever I hear that. But my stereotypes are, you know, I, uh, my heroes were Che Guevara and Bob Marley, and I had t-shirts to prove it. And uh, I didn't want to own a car because I thought they killed the environment, that type of stuff. And uh, there, was, there was another stereotype I embraced, though. And it was the fact that I was pretty arrogant. And I was pretty proud of the fact that I wasn't everybody else, to be honest. And we would make fun of other parts of the country. And one of the things we would say about the Midwest is that's where all those baseball-loving Republicans hang out. And it may, may, it may not sound like a job, but it was meant to be a job to us. And the, probably the biggest twist of my story is that I would actually end up moving to the Midwest. And <laughs> when I, to, I got there, to my shock and horror, uh, the stereotype was true, and I was surrounded by baseball-loving Republicans. And you can imagine what I thought about people. And, uh, but when I got there, God came after me, and he got hold of me. And one of the things I began to realize was that other people weren't the problem that actually I was the problem. And that other people didn't need to change, but actually I needed to change. And God also showed something that I wasn't quite right with him also. It's that I knew the gospel up here, but I didn't know the gospel in here. And God knew that also, and God put the gospel in my heart. And when that happened, things began to change. I began to actually be interested in people. <laughs> you know, I began to actually care for people, and I began to actually be helpful. I quit boasting so much. And I quit treating people like I was a force to be reckoned with. And for the first time in my life, I actually had friends who didn't look like me. And I remember being in church one day, and I went to a large church, and we were doing communion. And I was sitting in the back of the church, and I was overwhelmed with everything that was happening. I was looking, and I saw people from all over the city taking communion. And there was black and white and rich and poor and, and conservative and liberal, and all these, all these people were coming together. And I thought to myself, what in the world is creating all this unity? 
And then I looked forward, and I looked past all the people, and I looked to the front, and I saw the body and blood of Christ being broken and being eaten by everybody. And it was a fact there was a single meal, not a plurality of meals, but a single meal that managed to unify this diverse community. And I thought, this is a beautiful, and this sums up everything that God had been doing in my life to that point, in the Lord's Supper. And so it is for us this morning that Christ's table is a place where enemies and strangers become friends. Let's pray. Lord, you say that your church is the praise of your glory, and it's at your table that we see this most clearly, that you welcome us, people who have no place at your table, and you are eager and glad for us to eat with you. Uh, you, you feed us when we're hungry, that you, you take the anger and, and the animosity in our heart and you make our hearts soft towards each other. We praise you and thank you for this. This is so beautiful. Um, pray that we be like Jonah, uh, people who desire and long to feast with you in your presence. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.